welcome to the latest edition of Insights with me, Dan O'Brien. Recession has been looming on the horizon for well over a year in both Europe and America. Today, we're focusing on what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic, looking at the US economy and some of the challenges facing American policymakers, including, most immediately, the federal government's debt ceiling and the risk of default on US government debt. We'll also be talking about inflation, monetary policy choices for the Fed, the rumbling banking crisis, and many other things. There's certainly no shortage of issues to discuss over the next 45 minutes. And to discuss these matters, I'm joined by two financial market veterans, Joe Quinlan and Michael Sullivan. Joe, Joe has been with major, major financial institutions on Wall Street for many years and is also the co-author of an annual report on the transatlantic economy, which is essential reading in Ireland in particular, given its focus on foreign direct investment and trade. Uh, Michael Sullivan is Managing Partner at Harvest Innovation Advisory and a Senior Advisor at Landfall Strategy and West Exec Advisors. He's also a weekly contributor to Forbes magazine and the author of a number of books, including most recently, The Leveling, which argues that globalization is going into retreat. Gentlemen, you're most welcome. And thanks for your thanks, time. Sir. Thank you. Uh, Joe, can we come to you uh, for a state, a state side? Um, the deficit discussion, the raising the deficit limit is, is getting a lot of attention, uh, as if we don't need more uncertainty these days, uh, politicians are, are giving this added degree of uncertainty. What's your take? Do you, do you, do you view, do you think it'll be resolved as most people tend to do at the last minute? Or, or do you think there's a real risk that, that they won't come to agreement and there's going to be a, a, um, um, an event? Well, Dan, good question. It's got the market on edge. And you can see on Monday, we've got a you know down day. The next day, we have a rally or vice versa. So all eyes are on Washington. If you kind of fast forward, yes, we do expect the debt ceiling to be raised at some point. That's historically always happened. The U.S. is going to pay its bills, not default. This is how do we get there? Um, how choppy, sloppy, what's going to be given away? What's the horse trading? Uh, the president's left the country, so that, but the staffs are still working. So the key question, another key question, what, what, what's the real end date, X date, so to speak? Um, it, it maybe it's not June 1st, depends on the flows. There's a you know, lumpy federal revenue money coming in. So you know we're still in this choppy, waited out period. The good news, the principals are talking and they're talking about some it narrowing the issues, um, but we still have some volatility ahead of us in terms of actual stock market. Okay, uh, Mike, uh, would you share those views? Any? Different. I have, um, I mean, uh, Joe is clearly a diplomat. I have a slightly more cynical view, um, and I think this is all about politics. So, so the debt ceiling um, comes about because of an act that I think in, in 1917 said that only Congress uh, can control the, the the spending of the the Treasury. Um, and in governments where there's sort of um, a, a friendly Congress, so if I look at George W. Bush. Um, he had eight debt ceiling limits that were passed quite easily. So it, it becomes an issue when you have uh, what the French would call cohabitation, uh, you know, a, a Republican president, Democratic uh, House, etc. Uh, and it's an issue now. And I think the big difference is that is that um, following the Trump presidency, the level of bitterness uh, and extremism in U.S. politics is is unprecedented. And I, and I think that that increases the the risk of an of an accident so i have three scenarios very quickly one um is that we we, we do a debt ceiling raise uh, very soon in a statesman stateswoman like manner i think that's unlikely because so many people in this have an incentive 
to create a drama, which is my second scenario, a bit like the World Wrestling Federation. It's a great uh, fiction, it's a great theater, and it's a great spectacle. Uh, and we go right to the limit, uh, and the Republicans try and squeeze spending cuts out of the Democrats, et cetera. We have a bout of market volatility, and we get warnings from the Federal Reserve chair, but we get the deal done. And then there's maybe a 15 to 20% tail risk that the extreme Republicans decide to do to American finances what they did to democracy on January the 6th, and they take it right over the edge. Um, and if you look at some of the, the comments from Donald Trump, that looks where he, uh, where he would like to see it go. Um, and I think some of the people on the, on, the, on the far right of the Republican Party just don't see the consequences of this for the state. So I, I actually think we will have uh, something not unlike the 2011 uh, debt ceiling debate when there was a, when there was a debt uh, rating downgrade, in fact, that caused a market uh, turmoil. Um, we'll have a bout of volatility. There'll be gnashing of teeth uh, and a, a deal will, will, get, uh, will get done. Um, but it will it would be would be messy, and I think this is also uh, we can't look at this without thinking of the presidential election next year. This would be just the the opening round in that. I think. Good. I don't I don't share your appreciation for for wrestling, but um, uh, interesting points. Uh, and it, well, let me get a plug in. We have Frank Luntz, the uh, famed American pollster and commentator, uh, at the Institute on Friday, the 26th, if anybody's interested in the polarization debate. Joe, in, in terms of a default, it's a kind of general view that U.S. government debt is the safest asset in the world. If there were to be a default, it would be an earthquake-like event on a global basis, not just the United States. Is that, do you share that consensus view or do you think that actually, if it happened, it might not be as bad as we've all feared over the years? I, I do I do share that view in the sense that globally, it would be a big issue because right, you know, right now we're having like a lot of coffee with our clients about the de-dollarization, alternatives to the dollar, uh, central bank digital currencies, Russia, China trading, swapping in their own Saudi Arabia. So, this debt ceiling drama, and I agree with Michael, you know, it, it's hysteria. They love this back in town. So all that I do much in terms of bolstering confidence in the dollar. I, I don't think it structurally takes it away, but nevertheless, that would have serious global consequence, consequences. And let, let's face it, if we have this or right to the edge to it just puts China in a better stead, so to speak, as being the stable global stakeholder that the rest of the world should start to tack to. Now, there's other issues there, broader issues. But yes, the ceiling drama is a global play that played out on a very broad stage with a lot of consequence. I'm surprised the dollar isn't weakened as much as it has. And as Michael said, there was a lot of angst in the markets between July of 2011 and October of that year. The S&P was gapping down almost 19%. So there's a lot of choppiness, a lot of volatility. Now, the good news, four months later, we made up. You know, the markets bounced back. But it's no good or no fun being on that slide downwards that we could be on if we don't get this reconciled or some path forward very soon. Um, Mike, while, while, while Joe uh, has a look at that, on the issue of the end of the dollar, I've got a book on my shelves by... Uh, Barry Eichengreen, uh, um, an economic historian, somebody I have a lot of time for, was written about 20 years ago talking about the end of the dollar. 
Uh, people have been talking about this for, for decades and decades. In my view, you know, there's no realistic competitor to the dollar. Not, you know, it's, it's something people talk about from time to time, but but it's not, it's not, um, yeah. it's it's really a lot of time goes into it. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on it unless either of you uh, disagree with, with my view and you think the dollar really uh, is. I agree with your view. Um, can I just chip in on, on, on two points? Um, uh, Barry Eichengren, by the way, is the academic specialist on FX, and he wrote a great paper with two economists in the ECB called Mars and Mercury. And he basically looked at empires going back 500 years and showed that uh, when an empire ends, the currency of that empire begins to weaken. And that's really an argument for, for weak sterling, if anything. We're, we're kind of seeing the end game of that play out. Uh, I agree with you far too early to call the end of the dollar. And anyone who, who, who throws this you know, de-dollarization theory back at me, I, I, I respond with questions like, you know, would you go and live in China? Do you, do you think Chinese monetary policy is transparent? Would you invest there? And in most cases, that's that's not the case. And China uh, has an awful lot of growing up to do. And, it, and, and in, in, in some respects, um, its institutions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, open trade are, are, and open commerce are beginning to weaken. So I don't see China in any way taking the place of the states. I think there's an argument to be made that at the margins, the euro uh, is used more frequently and that some of the other developed currencies, the Swiss franc and the pound, are actually used uh, less. Joe, obviously anything that you want to say on that, please, you're more than welcome. But I'd really like to get your views on uh, the longer term fiscal health of the US, the size of the budget deficits over there, much bigger than anything in the Eurozone. People maybe on this side of the Atlantic just don't realize how big the deficits are in the US. Um, longer term outlooks, uh, outlook for debt is, is not good. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on where this is going over the longer term once we get over this shorter term debt ceiling um, issues around uh, U.S. fiscal sustainability? Well, Dan, the good news, if you want to call it that, gross public debt as a percent of GDP in the United States, it's around 99, 100 percent. It's not, it's, a, it's up there, but it's still manageable. And remember, pre the great financial crisis, Gross public sector debt as percent of GDP was around 40%. After the crisis, it bumped up 60, 70. It went as high as 80%. And now we're at 100 given the pandemic and the spending. But you're right, Dan, and this is important. Policymakers don't understand that they've got some difficult choices coming down the road because of Medicaid, Medicare, defense spending is rising. So once you get past the mandatory spending, defense spending, and then the interest payments, the cost of capital is going up. There's not much left over to run a big U.S. economy. And I think that has, hasn't really dawned on the policymakers just yet. The states are in good shape, relatively speaking. There's been a lot of transfer. But nevertheless, we're on a fiscal path that's unsustainable. But it's like Michael said, and you know, Dan, we've been saying this forever. So you know, it's, at some point, when do the chickens come home and roost? We'll see. But with, with, with 100% GDP, our budget, gross public debt, that's still manageable. The key is growing the pie, expanding the pie. The U.S. economy is 26 trillion. I mean, it's a big nominal number. You can argue about the components, but the key is driving growth, and that's what we're not doing now. So we've got some. We're, we're kind of slugging along at one percent first quarter annualized GDP. We need the growth dynamics. Last comment: We've seen a lot of big spending, industrial policies come from the Biden administration, infrastructure, IRA. 
the Chips and Science Act. All that spending in the next two or three years, it's key that it creates the jobs, the growth, the innovation, the productivity. And that's going to be key to helping managing our debt levels at a, at a, at a manageable and acceptable, acceptable to the markets. And I suppose it's as good a time as any uh, to ask about your views on, on short term, whether there's going to be a recession this year. Joe, you and your colleagues, um, what, do you, what do you feel? Will it, will it, will it dip into recession? Could it get worse? Will, will the U.S. avoid recession? Our, our top of house economists are looking for the, the recession to begin in Q3, in the Q4, early into next year. Shell, short, consumer still hanging in there. So, yes, we're, we are in the recessionary watch, but we have been for quite some time. The bigger issue, Dan, is the earnings recession has already started. We've seen Q4, Q1. So I think kind of the big hit comes in Q2 with the earnings. That's the bigger issue I think investors are looking at. Uh, Mike, same question, recession, what, what's your view on U.S. recession? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in a very odd uh, climate. We haven't had a, a sort of an old-fashioned, proper, uh, cyclical recession, I think, since probably the, the 90s. We've had a financial crisis um, in 2008, then we've had the, the COVID crisis. Uh, and this one could be the closest we come to a kind of a typical business cycle recession. It's still very hard to call because there's a whole range of indicators. Um, most on manufacturing ones, a lot of them are surveys that are falling uh, in a fairly vertiginous way. Um, and they haven't been as low since 2008. And all of those point to a, a recession. So at the same time, and I sound like the two-handed economist, uh, there are parts of the uh, the economy, like the labor market, that are very, very strong, stronger than perhaps they, they should be. And then in financial markets, you have the same uh, two-faced uh, view. Bond markets are pricing in a recession. If you look at the, the yield curve, difference between short and long-term money, equity and credit markets are not. So that leads me to think that uh, the the nature of a recession will be determined by two things. One, how sticky inflation is and how long that, you know, so it's not really a question of whether rates have to go up or down by 25 basis points anymore. But the fact that rates continue to be so high becomes increasingly punitive and whether central banks have to, to lean into that if inflation is sticky. And then the key thing I'm watching is uh, the credit sector whether we see more bankruptcies and whether you see uh, high yield uh, spreads begin to rise, whether you see credit spreads begin to rise, uh, and that will give you a, a proper recession. So I think, at the, you know, formally, we may well be entering into a recession. Um, I guess in a couple of months' time, all the economists will be asking, will it be a UVW shape, et cetera? Um, and that depends really on the credit cycle. Okay, there's a lot of issues there, but Joe, I want to come back and pick up on your point about earnings uh, in Q2 and just the general earnings as, as a markets person. One of the explanations people have been giving for inflation is higher profits, uh, the greedflation element to it. I frankly find that hard to see in, in the numbers, um, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on you know, higher earnings significantly higher earnings over over recent quarters and whether that's been an explanation for inflation no i don't think so dan i think actually companies have done a very good job managing the rise in wages boosting their productivity working through the global supply chain issues have they passed on costs certainly absolutely they're but their own costs have gone up as well so it's kind of bifurcated i mean it depends on the sector 
Uh, but look, look at technology. Technology is a leading component of the markets right now, whether it's AI related, but it's also related to the fact that they, they overhired in the pandemic. Now they're cutting back their labor force, reducing their costs. And it's that dynamic nature of the US economy. So the greedflation argument it doesn't sit with me because it, it, it's just, you can't fine tune your products, your costs as well as that would suggest. So companies are doing a good job managing through this difficult time. And another part of the difficult time which you're living through as an American banker is the uh, is the American banking, should we call it crisis, certainly the tremors coming from the banking sector that we've seen since earlier in the year. Um, what are your thoughts on how serious that is? You know, one argument is that with thousands of banks, it's only healthy that occasionally a bank fails, wouldn't be, wouldn't be market capitalism, you didn't have occasional failures. The other argument is that, look, this is just the beginning. Uh, there's more of this to come, super low interest rates for a long time. World financial world is readjusting. There are gonna be more more issues. Where, where are you on that spectrum in terms of how, how the banking crisis over there keeps you, keeps you awake at night? Well, you're always waiting for the next shoe to drop. And as Michael talked about, you know, there's some credit stress building. The commercial real estate market is pretty, pretty, pretty difficult shape. I was in San Francisco earlier this week. The occupancy rate's crazy. You know, in terms of vacancies, the write-offs that are coming. The question is, can this be orderly? There's private capital sitting on the sidelines looking for, to buy some distressed assets. So the Fed's got a lot of work to do yet. But yes, I mean, we have we're overbanked in the United States. We have over four thousand banks. They're going to be consolidated. I don't think it's going to be a la the great financial crisis, but with elevated, like Michael talked about, interest rates are going to stay elevated for some time. That's punitive. That puts a lot of stress on banks to work through their, their quarterly loans, deposits, duration positions. So it's, we're not out of the woods, but I'm not expecting anything like we saw in 07, 08. Okay. Uh, a, lot, sure? a lot of people said that in 07, and then we know what happened. Um, Mike, do, are you, would you be as, as reassuring as, um, as Joe? I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm first of all uh, uh, grateful that I left Credit Suisse about three years ago. Um, and I think it's, it's extraordinary that, you know, four, five, six big banks have effectively evaporated. Uh, now, they've done so in a relatively orderly way, which maybe shows that the, the sort of the system is working or that there's liquidity there. I, I think to step back, the, there's a really big picture issue in the States, which is that it has a periphery problem. Uh, and if you look at the tech sector, so the U.S. stock market is up 8% this year, and all of that gain comes from 10 stocks. Uh, and the U.S. industrial structure uh, is, is a sort of a core periphery model. You've got a small number of near uh, monopoly-like platform companies uh, who are dominating the market. And that's what we're beginning to see in the, in the banking sector. The capital is flowing to, uh, you know, to, 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 to the big banks, City, JP, et cetera. Uh, and that's a worry for the US economy. It's a worry for its society because uh, money is coming out of regional banks. Um, uh, it's coming out of some city banks. We're seeing a big impact of that actually in Silicon Valley where a lot of the banks who are who had relationship banking with, with entrepreneurs are, are gone. Uh, those entrepreneurs, you know, the, the, their companies are, are being downgraded quite drastically now in terms of their valuation. So there's a bit of a, there is a sort of a number of small micro shocks rippling through parts of the US. 
and I do think that overall this is part of a kind of a, a, a breaking thing, a breaking things theme, and by by which I mean that the effect of prolonged high interest rates begins to produce uh, cracks, and it it becomes too overwhelming for companies who've got too much debt or weak business models, or in the banking sector where people begin to either shift money just very simply into money market funds or question the uh, the viability of those banks. And of course, with social media, that, that can happen overnight. It's, it's a very cruel uh, world. And I don't think it serves the structure of the American economy to have this core periphery effect. Yeah, okay. Maybe that's the, the, the glass half empty view. Could, could I put maybe a, a, more, a glass half full or sort of maybe slightly more optimistic uh, aspect to it. Joe, you, you mentioned that there was over-hiring by the tech companies during the pandemic. A lot of what's happened recently has just been sort of the froth of over-hiring and over, over-extension during, during, the, um, during the pandemic. You mentioned before we came on that AI is just coming up in every conversation. We're all just hearing it everywhere now. It's, we're all looking at what it could do, how we could use it. Um, you know, are you getting, do you get a sense from the businesses that you talk about that actually, you know, not just from an economic side, but from an, the equity side as well, that this could lead to you know another big uptick in equity valuations because of the opportunities coming out of this, um, as well as the longer term economic advantages that may flow from it. Well, Dan, there's two sides of the argument, and one Michael talked about it's these big tech companies leading this rally. So there's a lot of money flowing into tech. Remember, tech got beat up last year. Now it's this year's leader as opposed to laggard but when you have that ai conversation where do you put your money how do you play ai all money right now is leading to those big tech names and that's helped boosting their valuations their stock prices in the overall market that's number one number and it, it's hard to find you know how to go down the food chain venture capitalists you know what's private what might come public ipos and there's a lot of work done to be done there there's a, that's a big churn but on your hand, then there's the economic side, the you know really side. More more debate happen. It's disruptive. It's going to take away jobs. Um, it could release jobs, increase productivity, be deflationary. There's a whole host of variables yet to be played out, and it could be destroying. It's the end of the world. I've heard it all from the futurists, from economists, from businesses. So we're kind of like feeling our way through, but I always come back, Dan and Michael, I think we agree with me. There's always something out there that's disrupting the economy and adjusting. And the people who embrace the change, the disruption, they're on the winning side. If you resist it, you're going to be on the losing side. Just think of it that way. That's very simplistic, but we're early innings, not even the first inning, so to speak, the first half of this process. So there's a lot to work through and churn through. Um, Mike, you, any thoughts on... on on AI is a net positive or net negative? A lot of, lot of fearful talk in terms of how uh, yeah. it could impact employment. Um, obviously, that's, a, that's always a concern when there's a sudden new uptake in, a, in any kind of technology. Um, th thoughts on, on net gains, losses? Yeah, I, I think it's, it, it's vastly more complex than, um, than we know or we think. I'm, I'm, I'm taken up a lot by the, the sort of the, the social, philosophical, legal aspects that we need new laws around AI and what AI can do. And you're seeing some, some warnings actually, uh, ironically from some of the, the leaders in the field. Um, I, I think the areas of, of the world economy that will be most 
uh, impacted by AI are actually workers in uh, emerging markets, particularly knowledge workers in emerging markets. Uh, I see the, the, them being uh, most disrupted by uh, AI in terms of just being simply displaced. I think what's what's very interesting is that in the uh, advanced economies, be it in, in the States or the UK or France, uh, what you're seeing is that in specialized professional areas, be it surgeons or soldiers, uh, men, women and machines are learning to work together. Um, so, for example, surgeons are using AI to complement uh, their their own work. So it's not it's making them better. It's not uh, not replacing them. Uh, in terms of the the stock market, there is already an AI bubble. Um, people can look up the uh, the share price of Nvidia, which is a uh, an interesting company. It's already ridden the semiconductor wave. It's ridden the the crypto wave. It's up three times since the start of the year because it's uh, apparently central to AI. And what's interesting in that regard is actually that still a lot of the innovations in AI are open source. So it's just private people out there um, collaborating. And I think that's where you're going to see a tug of war is, is between uh, the sort of the, the, uh, the insurgents, the activists, the entrepreneurs versus these big uh, platforms. But Joe, you, you mentioned earlier on, you know, one of the things that's changed so much is, is US industrial policy and a huge range of of interventions by the US government uh, that, you know, America is now looking more European than Europe itself, it seems in some ways, in, in terms of government interventions. Are you seeing on the ground when you're uh, uh, going across the country, are you hearing from, from clients that this money is actually getting into the economy, that it's having an effect, that it's changing, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's having as big an effect as, as its ambitions? Not yet, yeah, not yet, we, but we do have a lot of companies. And here's the problem. A lot of companies, not only do they have the federal incentives, now they've got the state overlay. The states have been adding, adding on to these federal government incentives from the Texas, you know, you know Florida, the Carolinas. Here's the problem. So you, you break ground, but then you can't find the construction workers, the electricians, the plumbers, the workers in general. If you're doing EVs or batteries or other parts, it doesn't really matter. You can't find the minerals, the metals. So there's a real backup and you know, the real activity that you know, we're not. This is a story public for, for 2025, 2026. Assuming we can find the labor, have better immigration policy that brings in seasonal work or specialized work. So there's a lot of excitement around a new semiconductor plant in, in Arizona. But when you go down there and see this big swath of field, they're they're moving some dirt around, but we're gonna have to push back our expectations when we actually see something come out at the other end. Mike, thanks, Joe. Mike, coming to you on the the, the fears in Europe about that. Are you seeing? Uh, you know, have they got deal to you? We're going a little off uh, track from the yeah. U.S. economy, but just while we're on it, do you see that issue as a, as a threat to Europe? So it's it's, it's huge. Um, so I, I just for for reference for people, I, I live in Paris, so I kind of pick up a lot of the, the policy stuff there. Um, and I think in general, people in Ireland don't realize uh, the intensity with which uh, Europe, the big European countries, France in particular, with Macron as the leader, are going down this path to uh, strategic autonomy. Um, as a response, I think, to the end of globalization, the beginning of this multipolar world, and also lately as a response to 
um, the, 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 the IRA Act in, in, in the States and the consequences uh, of, uh, of that. Um, and, and certainly the consequences of that were not well thought out vis-a-vis. -vis, uh, and you had seen a number of um, European com companies uh, look to move plant to, to the States. That, that, that's slowed down a bit now. Um, and there is a sort of a, a, a counter trend going on. Macron had Elon Musk in the Elysee Palace uh, at the start of, uh, of this week. Um, and the big European governments uh, are now really beginning to react. So, for, for example, Germany has offered Intel um, six to seven billion in state aid to build a, a factory there. And of course, the big well, the key topics of the um, of the Institute, Dan, is the uh, battle over Ireland's low taxes. But effectively, the big countries are, are doing the same kind of thing with state aid. Uh, in, in trying to attract FDI into both France and Germany. So I think as a takeaway, we can see those countries probably compete more with Ireland for FDI. Um, and I think as, as a lesson, Irish policymakers need to be much more attuned to the, the consequences of the strategic autonomy debate in Europe and also to find Ireland's place in that. So what are the things that Ireland will do as part of contributing and building this big map of... Uh, strategic autonomy across Europe. And that's definitely one I think we've touched on in the past and we'll come back to in the future. Um, Joe, in, in terms of corporate America, uh, obviously the China issue is really changing things. America is now looking at uh, not only vetting inward investments coming into the US, but also American investment going out. Um, do you get a sense in corporate America that that horizons are shortening and corporate America is, is, is looking staying at home more, not looking at the international picture. Clearly China is, is different from everywhere else, but a, a sense of, of corporate America and, and its view of globalization. Well, Dan, the good news is the corporate America is still very much interested in the global markets resources being in China, you know, shifting production in and around, whether it's Europe, whether it's India and um, Vietnam. So. They, they get the message from the White House, but, you know, these are business people and they've got to leverage resources globally. You know, here in the United States, we've got almost 9 million job openings. We've got 500,000 construction openings. We don't have the minerals, the metals for all, everything we want to do with solar and electrical vehicles. We have to be global participants in other markets for not only the supply side, but the demand side. So that message is still out there, albeit all the stuff about reshoring, friendshoring. They're taking it in stride. But here's one thing, Dan, I would be careful. Don't associate reshoring with deglobalization. You know, a lot of people say, well, okay, deglobalization, the evidence is with reshoring. Well, actually, the United States has always been the number one attractive place to do business, including China, for decades, as you know. We've done some work together on that. So reshoring to me is nothing really new, but it's got a big heavy stamp on it, you know, Uncle Sam, US government. But conversely, I'm I am worried that. Congress, the White House, becomes more involved in telling companies where to invest and why, and giving the incentives or disincentives otherwise. Yes. Okay. Um, on that topic, I, I suppose there there are growing there's a growing focus on what a Trump two presidency might look like. Um, Mike, as a Paris based person, um, you know, is is that something that's getting more attention there, and how different? from an economic transatlantic relationship, could a Trump two presidency be from a Trump one? Are there thoughts 
uh, are the French talking about this? Are they clearly always worried about being a vassal of they are. the United States? Yeah. Um, that sort of, uh, those sort of views. So for context, uh, Emmanuel Macron, somewhat in the vapors of his trip on the way back from China, talked about Europe not being the vassal uh, of, of the states. And, and that, that, that stirred a lot of controversy. And it, it's a sort of complex remark because it was multi- motivated by five or six different things. Uh, one of which is uh, the fear in Europe that uh, Trump or a Trump clone uh, could become the next president, uh, which would make life much more complicated on the international stage. Just think of Trump's comments, uh, and even those of the Sanctus on uh, on Ukraine, um, and and it just means that Europe has to become more uh, and more independent in terms of its mentality. It has to become more cohesive. It's become very cohesive as we know since uh, since Brexit. I, I think the implications for Ireland are huge because we, more than any other European nation, um, you know, having had three American presidents in Ireland uh, over the course of the last month, uh, Trump, Biden, Clinton, uh, we take the American relationship for granted. It's, it's a genuinely very close one. Um, but I think increasingly in Europe, there would be, we would be forced to choose sides uh, between America and Chinese investment. And I think we'll be forced to play a bigger role uh, in Europe. And I think one of those roles, potentially even in, 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 a, in, in a sort of Trump-like scenario, would be to, to be a bridge between the states and Europe and almost to translate one for the other and be uh, maybe not so much a, a broker because we are, we are and we're supposed to be planted in the EU, but just to do that 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 job of translating one to the other because there are misunderstandings and there are, there are lots of potential for misunderstanding. Uh, Joe, as you, as you documented in, in your annual reports on the transatlantic economy, um, it has continued to, to deepen trade investments. Uh, it, you know, it's the biggest in, uh, relationship between two regions of the world, as, as you guys highlight uh, a year in, year out in your report. Even during the Trump administration, when there were some trade wars, there are some trade spats, and there were there was a desire by, by Trump to bring jobs home from uh, by American companies employing people elsewhere. You know, there was very little hard sign of of those desires showing up in the data. And as as you said earlier, you know, companies make their own decisions; they decide what's what's best for them, and they remain pretty pretty global. Would you be optimistic that the transatlantic relationship and the depth of that relationship can be maintained even under a uh, a, a more protectionist president? Well, Dan, there could be missed opportunities. Um, and I, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, there's a lot of, there's some big elections in Europe next year right, with the parliament and we'll change over some leadership there. So it's a big transatlantic political year ahead of us. I think, you know, Dan, it's the opportunity cost because, you know, say a Trump 2.0, Businesses, policymakers, they're just going to be more hesitant to kind of even open the discussion in terms of what they may do because they might be embarrassed or see a U-turn at the last second. So I think it has a chilling effect and it has an opportunity cost. And Dan, to your point about businesses going about their business, remember, even with Trump and the tariffs on China, last year, U.S.-China total trade reached a record high, which no one talks about. So there's just, there's the evidence that you know business is doing their business despite all these policy overlays. They're certainly take that you have to take them into consideration, no doubt. But business is still being done, which is remarkable when you think about it. 
absolutely given given all the headwinds yeah mike are you as 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 confident in your view of about deglobalization as as you were when you wrote the book or have you been surprised by the resilience of, of the relationship including as joe just mentioned you know trans-pacific trade between china and the us is it continues to, to to beat records yeah, the, the world is not globalized anymore. So globalized, globalization means a world that is um, interdependent and integrated. And, it, and it's, it is not. The fact that we have a lot of trade and the business cycle has been strong is, is a different thing. And we have, we have a different name for it. Um, and you can't have globalization when the two biggest economies are at odds. And if you look at the flow of people, it's certainly changed since covid there's no more flow of ideas between the East and the West. Uh, financial flows have become uh, certainly more regional. So flows in, in, in their own right are healthy in many parts of the world. And look at data flows. Data flows are, are not globalized. We're effectively, you know, data does not flow in and out of China anymore. So it, it is, it's, it's a multipolar world or a multipolar world is taking shape. And I think we see reminders of that uh, every day, that's been reinforced by uh, what's happening in uh, in Ukraine. It's reinforced by you know battles over democracy in places like uh, like Hong Kong. And I think democracy is a is a really important underlying factor here. We are still in this democratic recession, where eight percent of the world's population live in democracies. And and, and again, take take Turkey as an example. Um, you know, Turkey was a really promising. Um, emerging country uh, and it's that that its economy has withered uh, and also its democracy or the the fledgling democracy has also uh, withered so the world is certainly changing it's becoming more regionalized uh, we have a different uh, a profoundly different system of uh, government of politics now in countries like Russia China China is becoming more autocratic um, so the, the walls, if you like, are coming up. Thankfully, trade is going on in its own way, but it's it, it's much more more guarded. Um, and I think um, you know what I see if I look if I aggregate the revenues of American companies and what they're doing with what their investments. They're they're doing two different things. So they want to sell into emerging markets. They want to sell into China, but they're not as in, they're not investing with the same intensity into China and some other emerging markets. Uh, and that's that's an indication that globalization, as we knew it from 1990 to maybe 2020, is over, and we're we're into something else now. Uh, Joe, just in terms of your your the charter on Wall Street, the the, the perception um, about geopolitical risks, whether it's China invasion of Taiwan, you know the Russia war, Ukraine escalating and spreading, is is our geopolitical risks less to the fore? Uh, of 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 both on, on the, the trading side of financial markets and also corporate America um, than they have in the past, or are they still very much uh, big risk factors? I mean, they're still very much in the forefront, and really Trump brought that on with the tariffs on China, China's response, Biden doubling down on China with the semiconductors, uh, making it difficult for the export restrictions. So no, no doubt, but I also think Dan, I mean, this, this resource nationalism, you know, to, to Michael's point, I, I agree. There, This is a different world where, you know, we need the minerals, whether it's lithium, cobalt, you know, name it, we need it, rare earth minerals. And you're seeing a lot of resource protectionism, you know, out of Latin America, out of Mexico, 
Um, you know, so this this does worry me, and you do have kind of the, the barriers going up. So that this is a big issue that we've got to watch, and so that feeds into the cost of doing business for companies, and yeah. or could kind of delay, you know, kind of when the earnings actually hit the bottom line. So we, we yeah. sometimes you hear a big announcement about a big plan, but you're not going to see anything on the other end for quite some time. Okay, yeah. look, and I just what, just to add to that, Dan. I mean, we you know three things we didn't see during the era of globalization were inflation, high interest rates, and war. We've got them all last year, and we still have them. And on that damn big note, we promise people uh, on this Insights series not to go over 45 minutes. Uh, we're coming up to that now. Rather than going to another round of questions, I'd like to thank uh, Joe and Mike for joining us uh, today. We've got a lot of ground, very insightful, as we try and do on this series. Uh, so thanks to you both, and thanks to those joining and those listening on the podcast. Thanks. Have a good thank day. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Joe.